reading today comes from the book of 1 Peter, the second chapter, verses 18 through 25. You are, you who are slaves must accept the authority of your masters with all respect, with all fear. Do what they tell you, not only if they are kind and reasonable, but even if they are cruel. For God is pleased with you when you do what you know is right and patiently endure unfair treatment. Of course, you get no credit for being patient if you are beaten for doing wrong. But if you suffer for doing good and endure it patiently, God is pleased with you. For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example, and you must follow in his footsteps. He never sinned, nor ever deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threatened revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds, you are healed. Once you were like sheep who wandered away, but now you have turned to your shepherd, the guardian of your souls. When I was a child growing up, my family taught me household rules. There were just expectations, and they weren't like printed on the wall or something like that. They were just spoken and lived. And so, for instance, we went to church every single Sunday. The only times we weren't in worship were the times we were on vacation. And even on those Sundays, my dad would lead devotions. So worship was a critical expectation of our household rules. Attending Sunday school <clears throat> and attending youth group, confirmation, um, senior high group, those also were expectations in my family. And there were some other expectations of household rules about manners, how to conduct yourselves, how to be respectful, especially to those in authority. But to be respectful even to the lowest in our society. That was a household rule in my family, that we respect every single soul because every soul belongs to God. I also remember learning never, ever to slurp my soup. You know, especially that good old long-noodled chicken soup where you just like, would like to just slurp up those noodles. I learned early on from my mother, we don't eat that way. We take small bites, and we are careful not to slurp. Well, you'll be surprised maybe, as I was, to learn when in high school we had become um, hosts to two men, two Christian men from Japan, 
They came to live with us for a month. You'll be surprised, maybe as I was, to find out when they ate soup, they slurped, especially the noodle soup. They just slurped up the noodles. And they explained to us, because you know me, I would never let an issue like that go unquestioned. And so they explained to us that in their culture, in the Japanese culture, it is a sign of honor that you really enjoyed the soup when you slurp it. Um, so I remember trying to convince my mother that I could show her more respect by slurping my food. Uh, she still didn't accept that. Anyhow, it was my first real experience with a different culture, with different household rules. These men were scattered to our place from Japan, along with about 30 or 40 other people from Japan, all scattered around the state of Iowa, living in Christian homes for that month uh, of exchange. Today, because of the virus, we continue to be a scattered church, not able to gather together in a safe manner. And in some ways, as a scattered church, we are like that early church that Peter guided. Christians lived with a completely different set of values, a completely different set of household rules, different cultures even. This Jewish Christian community that was trying to exist in the midst of an unbelieving Roman, Greco-Roman world and culture. Peter in the early church shared by speaking the gospel and by living the gospel in the midst of this unbelieving society. The Roman Empire was a powerful force. They were suspicious of Jews and Christians and persecuted them. One of the features of this scattered church was its existence in a, in a culture that was not Christian. One of the things that I learned from my Japanese friends was that they also had household rules, even if some differed from our household rules. Patty and I had household rules for our children when we began to raise a family. A lot of them we adopted from our families. We still expected our children to be in church every Sunday. I guess that wasn't as difficult if your father is the pastor. But we also had the expectation that they would attend Sunday school, confirmation, youth groups. And even in high school, when they maybe wanted to break away, we still wouldn't let them at that point. So as household rules, I, as a pastor then, oftentimes thought of the church as an extended household, and so I adopted this, these household rules for our church. For example, in our confirmation covenant, I've had expectations. The expectations being that you'll be in worship every Sunday, that, um, that you will attend church, that you will attend confirmation, and you will not miss those obligations. And, and so when I have shared those with families from the church, 
there has been occasion where they have apparently rubbed the family the wrong way because the next word that I have received from them is that they are leaving the church, they have found another church that doesn't have as many expectations. That is the challenge that this early church wrestles with. How do we live together with different household rules? How do we live together with different expectations, with different values? This is the crux of our issue today as we read this portion of Scripture from 1 Peter about slaves. Slaves were the lowest class of Roman society, and they were expected to submit even to their unjust masters, not just to the masters who treated them well, but to the masters who mistreated them. This Jewish Christian movement, this following of Jesus, began to make significant inroads in the region of Asia Minor, which is a part of the Roman Empire. Pontus, uh, uh, Bithynia, Cappadocia, Asia, all these countries that are mentioned in, uh, in this book are a part of Asia Minor. And so Peter is addressing this letter to all of these different countries, all in this region of the Roman Empire. And as he does that, Peter puts these household rules from the Roman society into a new foundation as he addresses slaves, wives, and even husbands with an order of submission. He does this with tactics, and he does it with substance. Let's first take a look at the tactics. Now, if you don't have your Bibles, I would invite you to grab your Bibles because we're going to be pouring down into this section of Scripture today. If you have a journal, a pen that you like to take notes with, or if you take notes in your Bible, I invite you, encourage you to do that. The tactics. Peter addressed both the slaves and the wives, assuming that they both have an ethical responsibility for their behavior. And that expectation of that social responsibility is one that exceeds that of the expectations of this day, of that day. So what, what Peter is saying is that slaves, even though you have been treated unjustly, even more so, I appeal to you to continue to serve your master. Continue. Because we'll get to that in the substance. The second tactic that Peter takes here is that he rejects the cultural expectation that a slave must worship his or her master's god or gods. Roman society was mostly a pagan society. That doesn't 
mean that they didn't have God, but they had lots of gods. And that there was not a clarity about one God above any other God. So all gods were kind of equal, and you just kind of picked and choose which gods fit your household. And so what Paul, what Peter, what Peter is saying is, first of all, um, there's an expectation that we're going to exceed that which we are called to do. And secondly, it is okay for you to worship Jesus Christ, even if your master doesn't worship Jesus Christ. So this, these are the, some of the new foundations that Peter is establishing in this social context of the Roman Empire. Now the substance. Peter calls the slaves who are treated unjustly to submit to their masters, even the unjust ones, because regardless of one's social status, regardless, Christians are to consider themselves as slaves to God. As a Christian, you, Peter says, you are a slave to God. And so, in this context, we'll take a look then more fully at the substance of his point. Now, at this point, some of you may be wondering, probably like many of the slaves wondered in that day, well, wouldn't this new faith in Jesus Christ free them from the oppression of slavery? Shouldn't it? Well, yes, it should. But what should be is not always what will be. After all, Peter proclaims to all of the followers of Jesus, even slaves, that you are free. In verse 16, he says that. He says, For sure, for you are free, for you are free, yet you are God's slaves. You are free yet you are God's slaves. So it's kind of like that paradox. You're free and you are bound. And so what Peter is trying to communicate here is that the masters of slaves are to be respected and honored, not because they may deserve it, but because it is a sign of our faith and trust in God. As a matter of fact, Peter acknowledges that masters of slaves use their power unjustly. He is not trying to, to get masters off the hook. As a matter of fact, he doesn't even address the masters. That's another tactic that is quite unique, is that Peter addresses the lowest of these classes in this socioeconomic system. And so, as Peter addresses this, he is telling them that even the masters are inappropriate and unjust. In verse 19, For God is pleased with you when you do what you know is right, and you patiently endure unjust treatment. My translation refers to it as unfair treatment. It's really an injustice. That's the word that is used in the Greek. Unjustice. Uh, unjust treatment or an injustice. And so Peter is acknowledging that what the masters are doing, owning slaves, utilizing slaves, 
um, mistreating slaves, he is acknowledging that that is an unjust section or piece of the social structure. Peter is also saying, as Christians live out their calling in obedience to God, even in the midst of these unjust social structures, that they are overthrowing the status quo by creating a new way of thinking. So what Peter is introducing here in his tactics is a new way of thinking without um, a forced uh, rebellion against the social structures. Matter of fact, the question could be asked, is this an early form of nonviolent activism? As we remember the life of John Lewis, Representative John Lewis from Georgia, who passed away um, this past day or two, um, as we remember his life, um, it's a day for us to remember um, that perhaps this was the beginning of this nonviolent activism. So the question then is, how does this square with one's ideals of Christianity to right justice, to make injustice not exist anymore? To right injustice. How, how does this square with our ideal of Christianity doing this? Well, neither Peter nor any of the early New Testament writers ever held out hope for changing the way, the ways of the world. As a matter of fact, I know some of you are getting really exercised about our politics in our nation right now and the politics of our world. And I know that I may seem obscure or, or different or weird to many of you, uh, but I more align with Peter. I don't know that we're going to have much impact on changing the world. I've lived long enough to see no matter who holds power, power gets corrupted. And so my focus is not on establishing a new Christian kingdom here in the United States. My focus is on evangelizing the communities that we are a part of with the gospel, the good news, with the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's what these early Christians were focused on, making holy households which would become holy churches with holy household rules in the midst of an unbelieving society and in the midst of a fallen world. Things have not changed that much for us. Peter is not optimistic about reforming the world and believes that injustice will reign until the Lord's return. He believed that injustice, like Jesus said, the poor would always be with us until Jesus returns and overturns the world's powers and systems that have become so corrupt. Let's take a listen to this next song, and then I'll return to finish the sermon by focusing on the substance of Peter's message to these early Christians in this region of Asia Minor. And we'll take a look at what that means for us today as well. Let's take a listen.
If you have your Bibles, let's open them to 1 Peter chapter 2. Because what Peter is doing is he is identifying Jesus with the suffering servant from the book of Isaiah in chapter 53. Now, the idea of suffering was new to the Roman world. It was unusual. The idea of suffering did not appear in the Roman household rules. As a matter of fact, it was not an acceptable pattern of behavior to willingly suffer. And so that becomes the most powerful aspect of the early church and its movement into and throughout the world. It's because we will never achieve our goals through political power. That's what Peter is saying to us. That's what Christ gave to us as an example. We will achieve our goals as a Christian household, as Christian community scattered and gathered, will achieve our goals by living in Christian humility, suffering for the sake of Christ, because Christ suffered for us. And so according to Peter's household rule, slaves and, and all Christians is his implication here, we are called to follow by suffering unjustly at the hands of unjust rulers over you. In verse 19, For God is so pleased with you when you do what you know is right and patiently un endure unjust treatment or unjust suffering. And then secondly, not just to suffer, but to continue to do good as you follow Christ's example. In verse 20, of course, you get no credit for being patient if you're beaten for doing wrong, but if you suffer for doing good and you endure it patiently, God is pleased with you. Jesus is our example as Christians, according to Peter. He suffered verbal abuse by the Sanhedrin in Mark chapter 14, verse 65. He suffered verbal abuse by the Roman guards in Mark chapter 15, verses 12 through 20. And he suffered verbal abuse by the crucified thief next to him in Mark 15, verses 29 to 32. And then Jesus accepts the injustice that is thrown down upon him without retaliation. He accepts this injustice in silence. In two places we have notations of that. Mark 14, verse 61, and Mark 15, verse 5. Jesus' unjust suffering does not mean that God abandoned him. His suffering is God's mysterious way to accomplish the redemption of the humanity. Jesus trusts all judgment to God, his loving Father, leaving the safeguarding of justice not to himself, not to his disciples, but leaving it to God alone. And that is the example that Peter is highlighting for us today. 
that we should leave the example of justice to God, to God alone. Hence, unjust suffering is to be expected by the Christian community. And we shouldn't complain about it. When we talk about our political ideas, one of the things that we're doing is we're complaining. We're called to suffer because that is how we will be an example in humility to those around us. Now, as we think about that, Peter's call for slaves to suffer unjustly is a call for all of us to suffer unjustly. And when we think about that, ironically, it was Peter, if you remember, if you recall, who most strongly objected to Jesus' suggestion, not really a suggestion, a prophecy, that he would have to go to Jerusalem and to suffer. Remember how adamantly opposed Peter was to this idea? So how ironic that this now becomes, this idea of Christian suffering becomes the center point of Peter's theology. Suffer unjustly, even though one does not deserve it, because we are Christians, because we have received this gift of grace in Jesus Christ. And don't stop at suffering, but move forward by continuing to do good even as unjust suffering continues. We do this because Jesus suffered for us. Jesus suffered for you. Jesus is our example. In verse 21, we read, For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example, and you must follow in his steps. And here is the summary of what Christ endured for you and for me. According to Isaiah 53, as Peter records this, Christ did not ever commit sin, nor did he ever deceive anyone. That comes from verse 22. He never sinned nor ever deceived anyone. It comes from Isaiah 53, verse 9. The second point is that Jesus Christ did not retaliate nor threaten revenge. In verse 23 we read, He did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. That is from Isaiah 53, verse 7. And then the third point in summary, he bore our sins. Verse 24, he personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. Isaiah 53, verse 4. And then his concluding point, that is by his wounds we are healed, in verse 24, again. By his wounds, by Christ's wounds, you are healed. Isaiah 53, verse 12. What Peter is saying here is that the past suffering of Jesus Christ is the present situation for believers and followers. So as a follower of Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, what Peter is telling us is that our present situation reflects Christ's past situation. So we follow 
the one who has set the pattern for us. Then he says this, the present glory of Jesus Christ, Jesus is obviously experiencing that glory, seated at the right hand of God in heaven. The present glory of Jesus Christ will be your future glory as you follow in the steps of the suffering Messiah. We, like slaves who were believers and followers of Jesus, we are called to suffer and to do good by identifying with those who suffer unjustly. So as we think about all the injustice in the world, as I mentioned earlier today, the homeless community, we are called to suffer with them, to identify in their suffering. And we thank Jesus. We thank you that you would choose to suffer unjustly for us. This is a complicated portion of Peter's letter to this, these churches, these households in Asia Minor. But hopefully the insight of Jesus, the suffering servant, being our example helps to illustrate Peter's expectation of what we are called to do and to be as Christians. Encourage you to give feedback if you have different ideas. Um, let me know. And uh, we thank you for um, taking the time to listen to this proclamation. I pray that it is good news to many who have heard it. Amen.